practice and a custom of Trinity Grace at the first week or two after Christmas break, we'll take a couple of times just to be reminded of what it is that God has called us to be and to do as a church. It's, an, a, good, it's a good thing for us to do that, to kind of be reminded of our foundation and the fundamentals of why we do things that we do. Well, this week and next week, before we start a series uh, for our spring semester, which will be a series through Psalm 119, and as we're going to learn in a few weeks, um, as we start that psalm, that that, I mean, if you've never read the psalms before, um, I'll tell you, and if you have read them, you know this, Psalm 119 is, is a really long psalm. In fact, there are 22 what we call, might call pericopes in Psalm 119. And each of those start with a, uh, with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and so on. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each of those different parts of that psalm correspond to one of the letters of that alphabet. So it's going to take us 22 weeks or so to get through that wonderful psalm. But we've never done that as a church before. It's been, we've spent a summer in the psalms before, but never an extended period of time. And I'm really looking forward to that. But that's in weeks to come. For this morning and next week, we're going to be looking at two different passages, really, that, as I said a moment ago, drive what we do as a church. And they're both from the book of Romans. Um, One from that wonderful doxology from Paul that we've just read here in Romans 11. And the other from the very beginning of the book regarding the power of God unto salvation. And so as we come to this doxology this morning, what gives rise to this doxology is, in fact, the sovereign power and grace of God. Paul has been talking about the fact that if we were to go back and read, we'd see that Paul's reminding us that all men, all men have been consigned to disobedience, whether that's Jew or Gentile, that all men stand in need of the grace of God. But what he glories in is that while that is true, that all men are consigned to disobedience, that even so, God shows mercy. He he displays his sovereign mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It, It is as we've just sang, isn't it? To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. And this doxology that we come to this morning, if we were to be reading through the whole of the book of Romans, we would see that this passage here kind of serves as that turning point in the book, as the fulcrum to that next part of Romans where Paul begins to encourage believers to live in light of the truth, to in light of that wonderful work of God, to the glory of God and for the good of the people. And But next week, rather than moving to that next section of chapters 12 and following, we're actually going to then, as I said earlier, go all the way back to the very beginning to see Paul's purpose in the writing of this letter, where we find the same truth, that that what we do, how we live as believers, the strength to do so comes from what God has already done in Christ Jesus. We give Him the glory Because great things he has done. Great things he has done. 
And, and as a church, as we uh, are a church that emphasizes the, the great solas of the Reformation, so Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, to God alone be the glory, we understand and we've been taught that, those, the, that the first four of those solas actually preserve the last. And I thought this week of how to say that best and the more I thought about it, the more I kept on thinking of R.C. Sproul's words and the way he did it. So I don't often quote long sections, but I'm going to this morning because I don't think I could say it any better than Sproul has said it here. Listen to the way he said this. By sola scriptura. We declare the glory of God's authority by noting that only His inspired Word can command us absolutely. Sola fide, or faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola gratia, God's glory alone. All exalt, or sola, um, excuse me, sola gratia, grace alone. All exalt God's glory in salvation. God and God alone, through His Son, Jesus Christ, saves His people from sin and death. We need the glory of God to be reinforced because it's the hardest truth of all for people to accept. The refusal to glorify God in an appropriate and proper way is basic to our corrupt state. As Paul says in his penetrating description of human fallenness in Romans 1, they did not honor Him as God. So often when we talk about God, we describe Him in such a way that He isn't recognizable as the God of the Bible. He says, I've said more than once that if our God is not sovereign, our God is not God. But I must go further. If we don't acknowledge the sovereignty of God, if we don't acknowledge the justice of God, if we don't acknowledge the omniscience of God, the, immu the immutability of God, then whatever God it is that we are acknowledging is not God. We're not glorifying God as God. We're glorifying something less than God as if it were God. And to glorify something other than God or something less than God as if it were, as if it were God is, and listen to this part, is the very essence of idolatry. Have you ever thought about that? That if we are not worshiping God as God, we are worshiping someone completely different. To God be the glory. To God alone be the glory. That's what we're going to learn about this morning from this short doxology. And I want us to look at it in two simple ways. You'll see it in your, on your bulletin or in the insert in the bulletin. We're going to look at the wonder of God and then we're going to look at the sovereign grace of God. Let's look first to the wonder of God. And, and again... What we've come to here in Romans 11, 33 to 36 is a doxology. It's a point of praise. Uh, Paul has been talking about the goodness of God. He's been talking about the faithfulness of God to his people. He's been putting on display the, 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 that God never breaks covenant, that he's always faithful, that his gifts and calling are irrevocable, and that what God promises, he always fulfills. And he's also said that God does what he does so that he might put himself, so that he might put his own attributes on display. God has a desire for his creatures to know him. The creator wants the creatures to know him. He wants us to know him. 
And that's why he's revealed himself to us. That's why he puts himself on display so that we might know the God who has created us, so that we might know the God who has saved us. And so here, specifically in Romans, he's putting on display his sovereign mercy. And in fact, <clears throat> if you were to give Romans a theme, it would be that. Uh, Romans is so rich. It's so full of truth. Uh, many years ago, we went through it together as a church. It's a wonderful study. But if you've never read Romans, do so. From beginning to end, it's so rich. But if we were to give it a theme, that theme would be the sovereign mercy of God and the salvation of sinners by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That's the theme of this letter to the Romans. And this is exactly what has brought Paul to this point of praise, to this climax. And, and, and as he gets there, he goes, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Paul has reached a point where he's looked at the character of God, the attributes of God, the work of God on behalf of sinners, and he's overflowing with praise. And it's called a doxology, and many of us have probably heard this before. Some of you may not have. It's called a doxology because the word doxa means glory. That's pretty simple, isn't it? So Paul is bringing glory to God. To bring glory to God means to praise him for who he is, for what he's done. It means to worship him. It means to bring honor to his name in word as well as in deed. It is, as we heard in the introduction, to glorify God as God. And, and thinking of it, of it in those terms and with that in mind, it's interesting then to kind of trace the development of that particular word doxa. And it means glory. I said that. And it does mean glory. But, but it kind of morphed into that meaning. Because originally, originally, the word meant to appear or to seem. In fact, if you've ever heard of that old ancient heresy called docetism, where people believe that Jesus only seemed to be human, that's that same root, docetism. Because he only seemed to be that way. Of course, that's a heresy. He was fully human and fully God. But that's, what, that's where this word comes from. So originally, originally, it meant to appear, to seem, and the noun form of it then meant opinion. Opinion. And that's why, why we call someone who has the right or correct opinion or understanding of something orthodox. A straight opinion or a straight um, understanding. One who has an incorrect opinion is heterodox, and one who has a conflicting or contrasting uh, opinion is a paradox. So we, we use that language and understand it in that way. But in the time that the word was used, it was only used of having a good opinion of somebody else or a good understanding of somebody else. And so it came to mean glory or praise. And so think about it in that way. To praise God, to bring glory to God is to have a right understanding of who he is and what he's done. And you say, but okay, Chris, why the grammar lesson? Why is that important? Because it teaches us about something that God desires from his people, doesn't it? 
I mean, we hear often, don't we, out in, um, in whether it's broad Christianity or even in the world, why, why spend so much time on, on theology? Does theology really matter? We don't need all this deep theological stuff. All we really need to do is just to love God and love others. But what happens when we do that and we forget all this other stuff is that we end up loving a God who is not really God. And we end up loving ourselves instead. That's the importance of having a right understanding of who God is, that we actually are loving and obeying and glorifying the God of the Bible and not a God of our own making. That's important stuff, isn't it? For faith and for life. And, and, and it's important for us to know God for who He is too because so that we can understand Him aright. We can understand that He deserves our glory and our praise. God doesn't demand glory as if, as C.S. Lewis would say, a vain woman looks for compliments. No, he doesn't, God doesn't need our affirmation. God deserves our praise. And there's a big difference between those two things. And he desires for us to have a right opinion or a right knowledge of him, a right understanding of who he is. And we, we desire as a church to have a right understanding of who God is, and of what God has done, and to proclaim that faithfully. And where do we get that understanding? From where He's revealed Himself to us, and that's in His Word. And that's why the Word is fundamental, foundational to what we do. And His Word says, as we've just read, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God is all-wise. He's all-knowing. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable or inscrutable as, as we read. They are beyond us. As I read that, it reminds me of what Isaiah says, that your ways are not my ways and my ways are not your ways. Well, Paul quotes Isaiah as well, but a different pl uh, place from Isaiah. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? But we understand what he's saying, isn't it? God needs no advice or counsel. He doesn't seek wisdom from another source. He is wisdom. His, de his decrees are perfect beyond measure. And I think when we hear that and when we, uh, and we, we begin to think about that truth, I think sometimes that's why we actually struggle with this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I think we struggle with the sovereignty of God because God doesn't consult with us. He doesn't consult with me. He does what He does because He's God. He, he has and He needs no counselors. In fact, the word judgment here um, it probably refers to His decrees. That, that is to say, that which God had decreed before the foundation of this world. I mean, who can, who can know all there is to know about them? They're unfathomable. It's inscrutable. And so when Paul is considering this, when Paul is considering the salvation of sinners by the Creator God who saved people and while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. When Paul considers that truth, that reality, he's gotten to the point of overflowing with praise. As he's been talking about all that God has done and how he's been faithful to his word and been faithful to his people, he can't help but to praise God. He can't help but to glorify God. Paul has been unfolding this wonderful mystery of God's salvation. 
And he's overflowing with praise. And yet still notice what Paul says. Even though he's overflowing with praise, there's still so much that we don't grasp. Still so many questions that we might even have. We might say, why God? Why did you do it like this? How does all of this work? And God, if you are sovereign, then where do we fit? All these types of questions that we have. And the easy answer, of course, the easy answer would be, oh, for his glory. To put his mercy on display, to put his grace on display. And not only is it the easy answer, it's also the right answer. It is the right answer, but yet, still, still, we might not understand his ways. They are indeed beyond us. We know it's for his glory, but we have a hard time believing or understanding how that is truly, truly and perfectly for our good. I mean, Paul says in this one, that familiar passage in Romans 8 that we uh, reference quite often, that God works all things for the good of those who, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We find that hard to believe. We say, yes, it's for His glory. God is sovereign. And then we say, but it's for my good. Really? How can it be? But that's exactly why Paul says what he says here. He says, His ways are inscrutable. They're beyond finding out. That's hard for us to understand how God and why God does what He does. They aren't understood by us, but they don't have to be understood by us in order to be perfect for us. And are we trusting Him in that? Because God is perfect in what He does. And Paul goes on to say, he says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? I mean, has there ever been a person that has ever given God anything to whom God is now bound to repay? Does God owe anyone anything? Is God in anyone's debt? Is there a person, save the Lord Jesus, that has ever earned the favor of God? Ever earned a reward from Him? And we want to say, well, I've done these good things. We, I know our flesh wants to do that. But again, this, this is about the sovereign mercy of God, the amazing grace of God. That's what's so amazing to Paul about it. And so Paul comes to this place where he's overwhelmed with the wonder of the gospel. He's overwhelmed with the sovereign mercy of God. There was a movie that came out years and years ago. I think it even came out when my kids were little. Um, so it's been a long time ago. But it was a movie called Facing the Giants. It was one of those Christian produced movies. And there's this scene where the guy, his name is Coach Taylor. I think I mentioned this years ago. Uh, Coach Taylor finds out that his wife is expecting and his response, and so it's not really that his wife is expecting that, that caught my attention in my heart, but, but it was his response because Coach Taylor responds in this way. He says, oh God, oh God, I am overwhelmed. And while the production value of many of those kinds of movies um, aren't always great, and this one wasn't either necessarily, but this particular scene, for some reason, I don't know, it moved me. And I think it moved me because the character somehow captured the response of being overwhelmed with the goodness of God. 
That's what Paul is doing here in this doxology. He is overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the majesty of God in his mercy and his grace. And yet, and yet there's something else we can learn here too. Because as we look at this, even while he's overwhelmed with the majesty of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, he is all the while rooted in the word of God. Do you notice that? He, he doesn't attribute anything to God that God has not already revealed about himself. Paul worships God in the ways that God has already revealed. As we talked about last week together. We're not free to worship God in any way we please. Uh, particularly as we came to the Lord's table last week, I remind us that we're not free to approach God on our own terms. We must come in the name of Christ Jesus. Paul is not out of control in his worship here. He's rooted in the Word of God. In fact, he's so rooted in the Word of God that he quotes Isaiah. And then he quotes Job 35, which is also reminiscent to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, where David says, everything comes from you, and we've given you only that which comes from your hand. Paul is responding biblically, as it were, to the wonder of God. You know, we often use doxologies of Scripture to sing. And well, we should. It's wonderful and it's appropriate but I wonder sometimes, as we do that, do we sometimes just sing the doxology and we not really think about and meditate about what brings about that doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. As we sing that, are we thinking about the blessings that have flowed? Are we thinking about what God has done for sinners like us? Have we thought, are we thinking about the blessings that He give us, gives to us both temporally as well as eternally? Or do we just skip that part and we're singing the climax, but we, but we never really meditate on the things that God has done for us? We need to be reminded that it's God who brings us there. I think we do that sometimes in Romans 11. That is to say that I think we miss the weightiness of this doxological response because we some, sometimes get caught up in some of the difficulties or the disagreements or the debates that surround this passage. You say, and that might be unfamiliar to you because we just kind of plopped right here in Romans 11 this morning in 33 to 36. And that's not our usual practice, of course. But if you were to read Romans 11, some of us might be thinking Romans 11 is quite difficult, isn't it? There's some hard things in there. I mean, Paul is talking about this partial hardening coming upon Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That is, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And we say, I, I, and, and so we allow ourselves to get so caught up in the disagreements or the debates there that we actually miss the mercy of God. And that's Paul's point. The mercy of God for sinners like you and me, Jew or Gentile. The sovereign grace of God. It is about the redemption that's wrought in Christ Jesus. And the gospel of Christ brings great glory to God. Yes, it's good for you. In fact, it is best for you. But what you will never begin to, un you, you will never begin to understand the gospel if you think it's all about you. 
It's first and foremost to the glory of God. And this is where we see Paul's response. Oh, oh, the riches of the wisdom. The wonder of it all. The sovereign grace of it. That's where we move to our second division here. Uh, Paul Paul ends the doxology with, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. As I mentioned in the introduction, or as I quoted, maybe more correctly, as I quoted Sproul in the introduction, uh, that all the tenets of the Reformation really can be summed up in this last one. Sola Dea Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, Christ alone. All of those. A A proper understanding of of those things brings glory to God as the God who saves sinners. Not as the God who helps sinners be saved, but as the God who saves sinners. And so if we were to miss Paul's emphasis here in Romans 11 as displaying the sovereign mercy or grace of God, then I would say we need to stop right here We need to go all the way back to Romans 1 and we need to read it in the context of it because this has been his argument. For from him, Paul says, are all things. All things come from... (coughs) All things come from the hand of the Lord. And in this particular context, salvation, salvation comes from the Lord. Listen to what... Uh, uh, David says in Psalm 24 and in fact he in Psalm 24 he begins the psalm with the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof he begins very broadly but then by the time we get to verse 54 he says of the man who stands in the holy place he says he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation he says in Psalm 62 for God alone my soul waits in silence for from him comes my salvation for from him. Um, I hate to do another movie illustration, but I couldn't, I I was thinking about this last night and I, I love adventure movies. Um, I love thriller movies. I love courtroom dramas. I love action movies, but I must say I love superhero movies. I don't want to admit it, but I love superhero movies. But it hit me in all these different kinds of movies that I like to watch. I, I like the battle between good and evil. I love the victory of the victory of quote unquote the good. I love seeing the hero win. But in some of these movies, these adventure movies that I watch, there's something that kind of uh, I hear every once in a while that, um, that just grabs my attention. And, and it's one of those times where I'm watching a movie when I go, Chris, it's just a movie. Stop talking to the characters. They're not real. You don't need to do that. But, it's, but what happens is, is that somebody's in trouble. Uh, somebody's been, you know, whether they've been kidnapped or they're tied up or they're this or that. And then somebody comes in and they says, look, there's no one coming to save you. Now, you may say, well, of course, that happens in a lot of different movies. Yes, but I can't help but to think every time I hear that is that in real life, not in the movie, but in real life, with ultimate things at stake, with eternity at stake, the good news, brothers and sisters, 
is that there is somebody who has come to save you. And his name is Jesus. We are not left out there on our own. It's not left up to us to try to work it and try to get loose of the bondage ourselves so that we can somehow get out and make it to him. No, as we've learned the last four weeks in church, he's come to us. He's condescended. He's put flesh on. And he's come to us so that he might save us. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel, isn't it? For salvation is from him. It's also through him. Um, there's no other way of salvation, only through Christ. First Thess 5, Paul says, For God has not destined us for earth, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 about the scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. So all things are from him, all things are through him, and all things are also to him. Just listen to a few of the Psalms in this regard. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 68.20, our God is a God of salvation and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Why, why, does God, why has God done what he's done? He's, he, he's done what he's done to put himself on display. Psalm 95, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 96 that we read this morning is called to worship. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 98, oh sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And then we move from the Psalms and we move through the very end of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And, and listen to the, how John says this here in Revelation. Is it not just exactly what Paul is saying? Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments, His decrees are true and just. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. And specifically here in this context, what leads to this climax, to this bursting forth, to this response to God's grace, is that salvation is all of the Lord. That salvation is all of God. Isn't that great news? that you don't contribute a bit to it? Because if you contributed anything to it, you'd mess it up. I'd mess it up. But salvation is all of God. That's worth this kind of response, isn't it? And it may be, it may be that we hear something like that and say, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Chris. Yeah, it's God's grace, but I, I add a little bit to mine. Because after all, I'm, I'm the one who believed. I go to church every Sunday. I do this. I even give to the poor. I do this, 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 and this. I mean, certainly I contribute to my salvation. Well, maybe that's why you've never come to that type of doxology. Because you're hanging on to some idea that you, you've contributed something for it. And that it's not all of God. And the irony is, is that our flesh tells us that this 
thinking that we contribute something to it will actually help us feel better about ourselves, right? Because after all, we're Westerners, we're Americans. We pull ourselves by, by the bootstraps. We do these types of things. I get to take a little bit of credit for what takes place. But the irony is, is when it comes to salvation, that only leads to bondage. Thinking that we can do something. I've got to do a little bit more because how much is enough? How much is enough? Let go of that. You don't have to be good enough. Maybe you're different than I am. But I don't think you are different than I am. I love hearing the words that you don't have to be good enough. Because Christ has already been good enough for you. Because if it were left up to me, I'd mess it up. I'd mess it up. Christ is already enough. Rest in the mercy and grace of God provided in the righteousness of Christ. So when we ask the question of ourselves, am I bringing glory to God? Ironically, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that you can't do that in your own strength. You can't do that in your own righteousness or by your own effort. The first step, as it were, is to abandon, abandon yourself. That sounds strange, doesn't it? C.H. Spurgeon, when he was talking about the Sermon on the Mount, so it's a little bit different context, but it fits here. Spurgeon would argue that the first step on the Christian ladder, as it were, in the Christian life is humility. It's the first rung. If you can't get that one, there are no more you can reach. So the irony is, is that the first rung is to admit that you can't climb it. To abandon yourself and to rest in Christ Jesus. To glorify God is to rest solely in Him. He owes you nothing. He's no one's debtor. And, and, and I know sometimes we hear that, particularly in the way that the culture wants us to think about ourselves, that that's somehow taking away from man, not seeing man rightly. Having too low a view of man, right? Our flesh struggles with that, I think. And, and we might ask the question, if, what, what is man if we can't earn anything before God, we might struggle with that. But what the Bible teaches us is that we are lost and without hope in this world apart from Christ Jesus. But what the Bible also teaches us is that in Him, in Christ Jesus, He has earned that in your stead. So here's the remarkable thing about the gospel. Is that what does that teach us about man? Well, that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what it teaches us about man. More than that, it's what teaches us about God, isn't it? And it puts the glory for him and not for ourselves. And that's where it ought to be. That's what Paul is saying here. That's where our good is found. Not in your efforts. Not in your righteousness. But in Christ Jesus.
So let's just rest there. Let's just rest there. Let's leave this morning and let's enter the new year rejoicing that the God of all creation, the one living and true God, who is infinite in being and in perfection, the one who is a most pure spirit, invisible, with neither body, parts, nor passive properties, the one who is unchangeable, boundless, eternal, and incomprehensible, the one who is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute, the one who has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself, the one who is alone, all-sufficient, in and to himself, not standing in any need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them. And yet, this one has manifested his glory in, by, to, and on those creatures. Because he alone is the fountain of all life and blessing. This one true God has condescended to save sinners like you and like me. Why? Because in his infinite wisdom, he chose to. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, not a one of us deserve what you have done for us. And yet we stand and we live and we think as if we do. And we don't honor you as God. We don't wonder at your work. Oh God, would you change our hearts that our response might be that of the Apostle Paul's. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of you, our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what 